Our scripture reading this morning is found in Acts 21. Please turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own, our ushers have Bibles available. Acts 21, we'll be reading the entire chapter. Let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's holy word. Andy, if you could turn lights on for me to help. Thank you. Acts chapter 21. Please follow along with me in God's word as we read this entire chapter. And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell, excuse me, farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived in Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with, with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. 
Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the, simple, all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all <clears throat> word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and satyrians and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, of course, chapter 22 follows his address. We'll cover that next week, but let's now give attention to God's word in chapter 21. We pray that God to give us understanding in this text that we read today and be preaching through. As you remain standing, let's take some time to bow in prayer. After prayer, our choir will come with special music and then the message from God's word today. We thank you, Father, that we can be together in this place. We thank you for bringing us through this week. We would pray that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would cleanse us as we come to worship 
Uh, allow us to be able to hear your word, to be able to speak your word, be able to understand the truth of your word and to accept that truth. We thank you for the series in Acts and we thank you for the focus, the work of your Holy Spirit to bring believers to be a witness to who Jesus is. We thank you for Paul's life and his illustration. May that encourage, motivate, teach us and bless us today as we look at your word today. We pray for those who have been sick, those among us, um, some who are back with us. We thank you for that. We thank you for our anniversary services last week and just that opportunity to, to, to look back on what you have done in this ministry over the years. And we just give you the thanks and the praise for your work in this work. Now we pray, Lord, that you, you'd bless this time in the preaching of your word to allow your word to come out clear and to speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. is the missionary journeys of Paul, and we can learn much through his journeys. He was busy traveling from place to place, and the scripture spends a lot of time sharing some of these details. We see that in the first part of this section, verses 1 through 3. He got up every day. He had stuff planned and things to do places to go and people to meet, a lot of details, much the same of, as our lives today. But in our busyness, let us not forget our main task. And that is the theme of Acts, and that is to be witnesses of who Jesus is. Who is this Jesus? Let's not lose sight of the forest for focusing, for focusing on the trees. You've heard that saying before. Each tree is part of the forest. Each one is unique. Each one is different. But they all begin to look the same when they're all bunched together. But they're different. Each day is unique. Each day provides us different challenges, different trials, and opportunities for us to trust Christ and to live for Christ. Let's not take our daily routine for granted. Let's be faithful in our daily routine to serve Christ and to be a witness for him in our routine activities. I don't know what your daily routine is like. 
But don't take it for granted. It's not just same old, same old. It may be the same old with a purpose. And that purpose is to live for Christ and be a testimony for him. It's good to see Paul in some of the routines. We, we're told about all of his, even some of the minute details of what place he passed by and how he stayed the night over here and spent time here. And we're, he's presented in a human sense so that we can relate to him and his activities and how God had a purpose in his life. God has a purpose in your daily routine. Seek to honor and glorify him. Now, in verses 4 through 16, I've entitled this um, Discerning God's Will. We've read through it. And there's a couple things that we want to highlight. We've talked about discerning God's will earlier in Acts when we were at it, Acts 13, verse 2 and 3. I'm going to read that. Acts 13, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. We noted here that Paul and Barnabas were serving the Lord while they were discerning what God wanted them to do next. They were not idle. They were busy doing what God had called them to do. Here at Sweet Communion, we've challenged you with the different ministries, presenting those ministries to you so that you might see and know how some ways that you can get involved here at Sweet Communion. I look at Paul and Barnabas in that church in Antioch. They weren't, they weren't just uh, wallpaper on the walls. They weren't just decoration in the church. They were there being used, and as they were being used, then they began to fast and pray and ask God, is there something else you have us for? Prepare, you're preparing us for something. Where would you have us to go? That's how they got God's clear direction. You know, we've had a mild winter, but there's times in our winters here when, when cars get stuck in the snow. And I know right outside of my house, I've had the opportunity to be a helpful neighbor, help push somebody that gets stuck in the snow. But, you know, as you push them, you, you realize that they get stuck in that rut, right? And sometimes they turn their wheels back and forth to try to get out of that rut. But when their wheels are turned and the car isn't moving, it's hard to push that car. You tell them, wait, straighten out those wheels first, and let's get you a push. Now, once you get moving, then slightly steer to get back in the path that you need to get in. There's a lesson there that we don't get much direction in steering just standing still. Once we get moving, God can turn that wheel a little bit and show us and give us the direction that he wants us to go. But a lot of us are just standing still, turning the wheel, saying, God, how come we ain't going nowhere? He's, he, we want you to be obedient, serving him. Again, in Acts chapter 16, we see a lesson on discerning God's will. Acts chapter 16, verse 6 through 10, it says, they, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. 
And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they learned a lesson about discerning God's will here. Sometimes God forbids us to go to a place. In other words, he says no. Sometimes God says no. And we can ask, why did God say no? Why did he not want them to go to those places? Weren't there people there that needed to hear the gospel? Yes, but this was not God's plan for them at this time. Some, less than there, God says, sometimes says no. No to what you are asking him and the specific timing and direction that you're asking him about. Sometimes he says no. But in that no, he's guiding you so that you don't turn right, that you don't turn left. And sometimes he's saying stop. And then he moves you in another direction. And he, he, he's giving clear direction even through, even though, uh, even at times when he says no, when he forbids you to go somewhere else. Eventually, we see step by step, the Holy Spirit guided them to where he wanted them to go. Now, in this chapter, in Acts 21, we see that Paul is on his way to, um, uh, on his way to Jerusalem. He has a clear determination to go to Jerusalem. I, wanna, I want you to ask the question, is this Paul's thinking or is this God's will? Because you ask that question for, for yourself in your life. What would God have me to do and how am I going to discern this? Paul has a strong determination to go to Jerusalem. It was his clear intention to go there, and he wanted to deliver the gift that he had collected from believers throughout the, the, uh, his journeys that he's gone through. I want you to see a few scriptures on this. If you turn to Acts 19, verse 21, it says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. Two destinations that's on Paul's heart and the, the Holy Spirit has somehow placed this burden or this urging on him to go to Jerusalem and then from there to go to Rome. And, and actually, that gives us the outline for the rest of, of Acts. We're going to see Paul in his determination, his effort to get to Jerusalem. And after that, we're going to see his journey all the way to Rome. And that ends the, uh, the, the, the book of Acts. I want you to look again in Romans chapter 15. Verse 25 through 27. I'm going to read that. You can jot that down if you want to jot that for reference. Romans 15, 25 through 27. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material thing, in material blessings. I also want to uh, give reference to 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. I'm going to read that as well. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. These 
scriptures express Paul's desire to go to Jerusalem to take a gift that he's collected from believers elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Again, we see Paul's intention, his plan, his purpose is to, in his missionary journeys, to go and collect an offering to bring back to Jerusalem. Again, in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 5, I'll read that. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we, as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. I won't read this section, but you also see in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, he talks again about um, bringing a gift um, from the churches to, um, to Jerusalem. So Paul had this desire, and the question is, was this the Holy Spirit's prompting, prompting, or was it something else? And the reason why we ask that question is when we, here in Acts chapter 21, we see many believers tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Why? They state because there's dangers there in Jerusalem. Now, Paul was was uh, aware of the hazards of going to Jerusalem. He knew that there would be danger, but he also knew that this was the Spirit's leading. In Acts chapter 20, look at verse 22 through 25. Are you with me there? Amen. Amen. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul addresses, he says, yes, I'm aware, the Holy Spirit has made me aware that if I go back to Jerusalem, there's some dangers that await me there. But he says, that doesn't matter. I'm going to go anyway. He says, I've been constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Now look on with me. In the chapter we're looking at in Acts chapter 21, verses 7 through 15. 
before we get to that, look at verse 4. Here he is at Tyre. This is on the coast, um, on, on the coastal part just west of Palestine. Um, but look at verse 4. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. They were telling Paul, don't, don't go, don't go. Now, he leaves them. You'll notice how cordial they were with Paul as they depart, it says, um, kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. They even brought their wives and their children to say goodbye to Paul as he left there. But they urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So Paul was aware of the danger. They were aware of the danger, but they they interpreted that because there was danger, in fact, it uses a powerful term. You look at verse 4. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go into Jerusalem. Why does it say through the Spirit? They discern that the Spirit didn't want Paul to go. Now, what the Spirit had actually done, it made them aware that Paul was going to encounter danger there. Not that he shouldn't go, but that he was going to encounter danger. They interpreted that as they shouldn't, that he shouldn't go. This is important. As we discern God's will, the Holy Spirit had spoken to Paul, and he had actually given witness to others as well. That continues in verses 7 through 15. Let's look at that. Paul comes... He arrives in Ptolemais, I think, if, if I say that right, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. But he's greeted, he greets the brothers there, he stays with one, he moves on to Caesarea, verse 8. And it, he meets this Philip the Evangelist. We've heard of Philip earlier in Acts chapter um, 8 of his ministry there. Philip has four unmarried daughters who prophesy while he was staying with Philip in his house. There's another prophet that came. His name is Agabus. In verse 9 or verse 10, we meet Agabus. And it says he met, when he met Paul, he, he took Paul's belt and tied up his own feet and his own hands. He says, the Holy Spirit has told me this is how, this is what Paul has in store for him when he goes up to Jerusalem. He's a prophet. Much like the Old Testament prophets, they, 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 they use symbols and, and, and displays to show what God was saying. This prophecy is, is absolute, it's true. In fact, we see it came to pass. The question is, does this mean Paul shouldn't go into Jerusalem? Verse 12, when we heard this, now who's the we? We know Luke is the writer of Acts, so Luke is part of this group. He says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. It seems like the pressure is building for Paul not to go up. Even Luke is in, included in this group to say, no, Paul, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. The Holy Spirit has spoken. 
In reality, what the Holy Spirit has spoken is this is what would happen to Paul. Not that he shouldn't go, but this is what will happen. Notice Paul's response. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. You see, they are using, using an emotional appeal to pull Paul from this journey that he's on, his intent, his full intent to go into Jerusalem. He says, what are you doing? Why are you trying to weep and break my heart through this emotion? He says, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice it says in verse 14, he would not be persuaded. That's a strong persuasion. Everybody, it seems, that loves Paul, the Holy Spirit has spoken to them and told them that he's going to encounter these troubles. And their response is, Paul, please don't go. Please don't go. Weeping and crying for him not to go. Is Paul callous? No. He's sensitive. He's sensitive to the Spirit. And the Spirit has shown him, look, you see the problem here, the reason why I spend so much time in here, we too often discern that trouble means no. Trouble means a closed door. You're going to have trouble if you do that. When God says for, for you to do something, and he also says trouble, do what Paul did. It says he would not be persuaded. Then Luke says, we ceased. <laughs> Paul was Holy Spirit hard-headed. He was Holy Spirit determined to do what God had told him to do. And finally, when he persisted, they ceased. Now, I want you to notice what they did when they ceased. It says in verse 14, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said what? Now, wait a minute. Isn't that how they're supposed to pray anyway? Isn't that how we're supposed to pray? Look, we're supposed to pray, Lord, your will be done. What, before that, what were they saying? We don't want you to go. We don't want you to go. It's not our will that you endanger yourself, Paul, in this way. Now they say, that God's will be done. That's where we ought to be when we pray. It's a, it's, it's a hard lesson to learn to, to strip ourselves of emotion that are in conflict with God's will. But it's a part of life. In Luke 26, excuse me, in Matthew 26, um, Jesus says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he says, nevertheless, your will be done. And so we all have those struggles. And that struggle, discerning God's will, is to take our will or our emotion out of it and hear God's will. It's not that we shouldn't have emotion. God gave us emotion. It's a good thing. We simply shouldn't be guided by it. Absent of the clear 
word of God, absent of the clear prompting of the Holy Spirit. Danger does not mean don't go. Trouble does not mean don't do what God has called you to do. Jesus certainly encountered that in Gethsemane as he agonized over going to the cross. He says, there's trouble, there's pain, there's suffering. Nevertheless, I will do it. You know how Christian walkers like that? If, you, if you're going to have, um, if you're going to weigh the pluses and the minuses and, and the give and the take, in fact, Jesus says, weigh the cost before you come in. Weigh the cost and know that there's going to be some hardships involved, but in spite of those hardships, follow me. Jesus says, you're not worthy if you're not willing to take up your cross. What is a cross? It's the hardship of suffering and follow me. So this is not an invitation to come and enjoy bliss in your walk with the Lord. This is an invitation to follow God in spite of sure struggle, difficulties, and challenges that come with it. That's true trust in God. Saying, God, you, you are sufficient for the trouble that I will meet. You, aren't, you haven't abandoned me. You will supply my need. When you pray, are you praying for a good day? Or are you praying for God's will? Challenge you to pray that way, for God's will. I mean... Which one of us, if I had to ask for a show of hands, which one of us don't want a good day? Certainly we do. But there's something more important than our mere comfort. And that is obedience to God's will and doing his will. Another way of saying that is don't, don't just do what you feel comfortable doing. As a pastor, I encounter that so much. He said in so many spiritual ways, but what they're really saying is I don't feel like doing that, pastor. I'm not comfortable doing that. I say, so what? I don't care what you're comfortable doing. God doesn't care what you're comfortable doing. He's challenging you to obey him regardless of the impact on your level of comfort. Simply obey him. Simply obey him. Now, the chapter doesn't end there. In fact, it goes on. In verses 17 through 26, Paul meets with James and the elders of the church. And there's a challenge there. Paul reports in his, in his meeting with them, he reports what the Lord has done in his work and in his ministry. Um, look at verse 19 there. things to note there. In verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. 
he recognized God's doing. And in fact, that, that's kind of a, a summary of the book of Acts. Acts of who? Not just Acts of the Apostles, but Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. What God had done through Paul in this ministry of going out and giving the gospel to the Gentiles, it's, it's the work that God has accomplished. Praise God for that because only God can change the heart. Only God can give life to dead Dead beings, those who are spiritually dead, only God can give that life. So as Paul comes back to Jerusalem, to, to kind of the central part of, of the gospel going out, he reports back to the elders of Jerusalem, including James. He reports what God had done. And notice the elders' reaction. This is just a short section, short few words, but it's so important. In verse 20, when they heard it, they glorified God. They rejoiced, they glorified God. It's not so much that they lifted up Paul, and it's not that they just heard it and said, okay, big deal. No, they glorified, not the man, they glorified God. They recognized this as God's work. Now, why is this important? It's because they had a predominant ministry to Jews, and Paul was going outside of Jerusalem, way outside of that area, and his predominant ministry, um, God had opened the door with him to the Gentiles. And now the Jews back in Jerusalem were, were acknowledging that God had done this work. The gospel now had crossed the line into all of the world and into the Gentiles. In fact, you can see the, the, the genuineness of the Gentiles' faith by the very gift that Paul was bringing back to Jerusalem. These Gentiles were saying, hey, we are fellow brothers in Christ. We are Gentiles. You are Jews. You are suffering and you're in need, and we want to bring help and support to you. So Paul's gift back uh, from these Gentiles who have recently gotten saved now are already giving of themselves of their own resources to bless the Jewish believers back in Jerusalem. Now, um, the elders give um, advice to Paul to help Paul's testimony and his credibility among Jewish um, believers those especially in the Jerusalem area, the elders recommended that Paul show his respect for the law as a Jew. And he do this, they, 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 they um, recommended that he do this in a certain way. You see, there was an accusation and a character, characterization of Paul that he taught that the Jews should forsake the Old Testament law and customs. You look at that accusation, it's the same accusation they made uh, uh, um, to Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and 8, six, Acts chapter 6 and 7. And it's actually the same accusation they made against Jesus himself. But in, in, in the Gospels, in Matthew 5, 17, this is what Jesus said. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish the law or to abolish them, but to fulfill them. They accused Jesus in several accounts of going against the law, of working on the Sabbath, 
healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus intentionally did those things to make a point of what the law was and how it pointed to him. It also pointed to the sinfulness of man. But he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. This accusation against Paul was that he was teaching people to disregard the law and to disrespect the law. And he wasn't. What Paul was simply saying is that the law is not what brings salvation. It's not obedience to the law that saves a person. The law points to them as sinners and points to them as the only savior that they have is Jesus Christ. The law is extremely helpful in that regard. And he respected the law. He was also saying that as a believer, he was not bound by the law and its obedience for his salvation. And Gentiles were not bound to do that either. But he was certainly respectful. Um, um, Paul was respectful of his own Jewish heritage. And so the elders told him, do this. Look, we have four men here who have a vow, probably a Nazarite vow. They had a vow, and he says, I want you to take these men. I want you to pay for their expenses, probably the sacrifices that were made in regards to that vow. And I want you to do this publicly in the temple. And I want you to do this to show that you have a wholesome respect for the law. The elders knew that the characterizations of Paul were false and was done to stir up the crowd the same way they were done with Stephen, the same way they were done with Jesus. You remember the accusations against Jesus at, the, at, at, at his crucifixion? None of them were, were, were legitimate. None could be proven, but they were done to stir up the people. So the elders wanted Paul to just demonstrate with the Jewish believers and Jews in general his observance to the law as a Jew by taking these men who were under a vow and purifying himself with them in the temple according to Jewish custom. Paul agreed to this and had no problem with it. In other words, he says, I'm a Jew. I observe the customs of the Jew. They were saying Paul is teaching people not to be circumcised. That's not what Paul was doing. In fact, there's an instance where Paul actually circumcised Timothy. Um, and there's an instance where uh, um, he didn't circumcise someone else. And so he, it, it wasn't a matter of him teaching against the law. He believed in respect to the Jewish custom that he lived under. It's just that they had a wrong understanding of it and thought that it was salvation itself. So Paul went along with this demonstration, and he did as the elders wanted him to do, and he had no problem with that. There was no conflict in him with that in the gospel at all. But you'll notice as he does this, now we're into chapter, uh, we're in 21, verses 27 through 36. Paul is arrested in the temple. Before Paul could complete this seven-day vow with the four men, it says Jews came up from Asia and stirred up the crowd. These Jews saw Paul in the temple. Now, you keep in mind, they're in Jerusalem. There is only one temple 
in all the Jewish worship in, in, in all the world, and that's the single temple in Jerusalem. There are many synagogues throughout the area, you know, and Paul was his custom to go, and when he was in Ephesus or when he was in some other place, he would go into the synagogues where Jews met and speak to them there. Now he had come back to, 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 to the headquarters of, 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 of Jewish faith and also Christian faith, and he was there in the temple. They had seen him in, in the city with Gentiles, and now that he was in the temple, they assumed that he had brought those same Gentiles into the temple, but he had not. I want to read there, starting at verse 27 on down. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. They make three accusations against Paul. We're saying three accusations against Jesus. They said he was teaching the people. He was teaching against the people, against the law, and against the temple. He was doing neither. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So Luke chimes in as the writer and gives a little background. Verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. They supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. He had not done that. He was there in the city, but he hadn't brought him into the temple. That would have been a violation, and Paul would not have done that. Paul had a respect for the custom there in the temple. Verse 30, then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. That's interesting. They dragged him out of the temple. Why would they drag him out of the temple? Why don't they just do their dirty work in the temple? You know why? They didn't want to defile the temple. These men who have a respect for their religious custom are about to kill an innocent man in public. Murder. No trial. No nothing. Just beat him to death. But they got respect for the temple. Verse 31. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort the cohort, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Somehow, word got back to the head man, the authorities there, and he came to this confusion, to this mass riot. It's kind of interesting that God is working in this. Paul, in fact, is in Jerusalem. He is encountering trouble. And, in fact, he's beaten, almost beaten to death. But God sends a help. It makes me think about <laughs> police response. Think about this situation where Paul is being beaten by a mob and word goes out to the authorities and they respond quickly enough 
Because it says in verse 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. They're in the middle of beating him, trying to kill him. But the response was, 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 was so fast. In other words, God did something that would have been unusual in that day. In the midst of a riot in a crowd, vicious people trying to kill one man, he sends the authority, he sends the police into that group to stop the riot. Verse 33, then the tribune came up and arrested him. They arrested him for two reasons. They arrested him to protect him from the mob. They've arrested him so that they could find out what was going on and what needed to be done about this person. He inquired who he was and what he had done. He's in the middle of a crowd trying to find out what's going on. It says, verse 34, some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. That's just like a crowd. That's just like a confusion and a riot. That you're not going to get much truth there. You're going to hear a whole lot of heat, but not a lot of light. A lot of emotion, but not a lot of truth. That's exactly what the case with Paul. It says, as he could not learn the facts, this is the authority, the head authority there. He could not learn the facts because of the uproar. He, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he come to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. Paul, they were trying to beat him to death. The soldiers rescued him from the mob, carried him back to the barracks where he would be under arrest. Meanwhile, the crowd is following him, crying, the interpreter, kill him. Away with him, away with him. So the authorities stepped in. Paul asked to speak to the authorities. He says in verse 37, may I say something to you? He says, do you know Greek? He, he, he's amazed that Paul is speaking this same language. Greek was a language of the culture. It was a language um, that this man was surprised that Paul would use. He thought he was an Egyptian. He thought he was a terrorist is what he thought he was. He says, verse 38, are you not the Egyptian who sent, who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul says, no, that's not me. And he asked for permission to speak to the people. The authority gives him that permission. So Paul stands on the steps, motions with his hands, and the people quiet down and he begins to speak to them in the Hebrew language. Now, next week, we'll talk about what his message is in that time and why he uses the, the Hebrew language. He's spoken to the authority in Greek and how he speaks to his fellow Jewish brethren, this angry mob in Hebrew, and it brings them to a quiet hush. They realize that he is one of them, and that their attack on him is totally unwarranted.
message through this today. And Paul was saved. Jesus had told him. In fact, he told Ananias who he sent to Paul. Ananias was apprehensive about going to help Paul. He says, hey, Jesus had talked to Ananias and told him through a vision to go and talk to Paul. And he says, I heard a lot about this man. He's a vicious man. He came to arrest, haul off into prison, and even kill people. He's got a history of doing that. He was there when they killed Stephen. Jesus said to Ananias, go. I've appointed this man to suffer great things in my name. And he's going to speak to kings and authorities. He's going to be witness all over the world. Witness to who I am and to what I've done. God had called Paul for that very reason. To be a witness to authorities, to be a witness to to men in great and high position, and to suffer great things for his name. It's amazing. Not all of us get that opportunity to speak in such an important setting as Paul did, to speak to authorities who are kings and rulers of his day. And some say he would even have spoken to Caesar. But none of us either have the opportunity to suffer the way that Paul suffered for the name of Christ. And yet God has called each one of us to be a witness and a testimony. The question there is, are you willing to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and take up the task that God is calling you in spite of the cautions and the warnings that you have something to suffer, that there's going to be some type of hardship in your life. I would encourage you this. Outside of Christ is where the real hardship is. Because when we, when we trust Christ, yes, there's hardships there, but Romans 8 tells us there's nothing in comparison to what we're going to enjoy in our future fellowship with Christ. We're simply, as the Bible is, we're just trying to be real with you and, and not let you think that when you come to Christ, it's just an easy road and smooth sailing. It's not that. But at the same time, I want to make it very clear It's worth every sacrifice. Listen, there will not be a single soul in heaven that will regret any sacrifice they made in the name of Christ. Meanwhile, there will not be a single individual in hell who says it was worth it. They talk that nonsense now. You hear it all over, but it's going to be hush in hell. There won't be a single person who says, yeah, it's cool. I'm I'm cool with this. Cool is not a word you're going to use in hell. (laughs) 
either as temperature-wise or fashion-wise, is not a word. But there would not be a single person in heaven that regrets any sacrifice they made for the cause of Christ. We're simply asking you by faith to make that commitment to live for Christ now, to walk in obedience to the Holy Spirit's leading right now. How do you do that? See, here's the thing. I don't know what you may encounter. I don't know what's, what's on what God has on my agenda. And he meant it that way. You just don't know. So I'm simply asking you, as I challenge myself, is simply say yes to God. Simply say yes to God. You're saying, God, whatever you have in store for me, I embrace it because I know you will never leave me or forsake me. You will be with me through thick and thin. And I know even after it's all over, it's going to seem like nothing. Paul says this light, momentary affliction that we live through, he says in Romans 8, is, is nothing compared to the glory that we will share in the future. We're saying embrace God's purpose and God's will. Say yes to everything that God, even before you know it. You know, we want to say, well, <laughs> it's, it's like when a person comes to me and they say, hey, can you do me a favor? My next question is what? I don't say yes. I say what? Because it's conditional. But God is asking us to say yes before we say what? To say yes by faith before we say what? By faith because you're trusting him no matter what the yes is. He'll give you the strength for whatever the what is. Father, we thank you for your grace and we thank you for your challenge. And we pray, Lord, that you challenge individuals today, right now, to say yes before they say what. It's amazing. Jesus knew what the what is, and he said, yet in, in spite of the what. None of us have the what of what Jesus had, physically or emotionally or spiritually, to bear what he bore for our sins, and yet knowing full well what he would encounter, he said yes. We're simply to be a witness to Jesus, to take his name everywhere. Father, we pray for the power to do that. We pray for your Holy Spirit to urge, to continue us in that urging of that. And I pray, Lord, that you would challenge Move us to walk in obedience to you, in submission to you, to say yes to you in everything that you have for us. For some here today, that yes means, certainly means trusting Christ as Lord and Savior. It means trusting Christ when walking with Christ 
may, may, may seem like a burden, may, may mean turning and does mean turning from sin and turning to you. You, this is what you've called us to, Lord, and I pray that we would embrace and gladly say yes to all that you have for us in our lives. For some, it means being a part of this church, committing to obedience to you in specific areas and even in areas we don't know yet. But just saying yes to whatever your will is. I pray, Lord, that we'd say yes. Lord, we've looked over our ministry and there's help that's needed in various places like our nursery. And so many have said, ah, maybe, or later, instead of saying yes, because it's hard work. But I pray, Lord, in practical areas like that, we would say yes. Some have been challenged with finances and say, ah, maybe, later, some, I'll give some. But you're challenging them to give in obedience to you that they would submit to that. In the walk and turning from sin, Lord, you're challenging some to say, I will not live in sin. I will not follow the dictates of my own flesh. I'll obey you. I pray, Lord, that we'd make that commitment in our walk today and live by that and trust you to supply whatever it is that we need and the timing that you need, that we need. So, Lord, there's many specific areas. I pray that you'd move in our hearts to challenge that area that I may not have spoken to, but your Holy Spirit is certainly speaking to. And I pray that that response from us will be one that says yes. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.